Hi, welcome to Living Water Bible Fellowship's audio sermons. It's our prayer and hope that you'll be encouraged and uplifted by the preaching of God's Word. Stick around after the message to hear more about how to contact us. Amen. Our God is worthy of worship. Uh, Eternal worship from us and from every creature in heaven and on the earth. Uh, Just again, I wanted to remind you, there is a a new Sunday school class starting at 1045 in the education building. And I forgot to mention, 530 tonight, there's a prayer meeting in the foyer of the Christian education building. Please check that out. Um, Please participate in the worship. So many different avenues of worship. We're here today to glorify and honor God, and part of uh, being uh, worshipers is opening our lives to His Word, to hear from the living God and to let Him speak to us and then to respond during the week in faith. Uh, We are in a sermon series on worship, and and, uh, we've covered a lot of ground so far. You might not know it, but we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, We've talked about what worship is and what it isn't in so many ways. Uh, Worship is response to God, to who He is and what He's done. Uh, We've talked about false objects of worship. We'll talk a little bit more about that in weeks to come. But our object is God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've talked about uh, authentic worship. We started last week going down the road of, we looked at Old Testament worship. How did they worship God? How, what was prescribed to them? What was, how, what was God's terms? What was His, his purpose in, in calling them to certain forms and functions and structures? And so today, if you looked at your outline in the bulletin, part two, as it were, from Old Testament worship to New Testament worship. Uh, if you've done any reading in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with any of the styles and the structures, the, the festivals, the feasts, the Sabbaths, the holy days, uh, the, the temple worship, you know that things have changed. We do things differently today. What, what, what does God want from us as these New Testament people, as, as a New Testament church? What does worship entail? Have you ever thought about what God expects from you as a worshiper, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as someone He's bought with His blood? What, what does worship mean? What does it look like? What does it entail today? That's where we're going to focus on. Please open your Bibles. To John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, we come to a famous passage, as it were. You know, there's certain scriptures that some people know about and others that a lot of people don't know about. And this is one that a lot of people are familiar with. But it's one of the, uh, I guess you could say, it's, it's a very misunderstood passage. Because once we get to the meat of it, and once we get to the heart of it, it's proclaimed as this is what worship is, but then it's not explained. <laughs> Let's open the word together. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making, uh, more, making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour or noon. Uh, So many fascinating little parts to this text. You know, Jesus gets tired. I thought he was, you know, God. Yeah, so we see part of his human nature here. He's wearied from traveling. He's exhausted. He sits down at the well at noon. Uh, We wonder about some of the geography and some of the history uh, Samaria. 
Okay, so Judea down at the bottom part, Jerusalem and Judea down at the bottom part of Israel. Samaria was kind of right in the middle of Israel, and then Galilee was up above. So we see in the Gospels Jesus moving back and forth from Judea to Galilee. And Samaria is kind of this middle area that is not talked about very much. It's because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. The Jews were hated by the Samaritans. And there's a long history there. Remember back in, in the Old Testament. Remember back in, in a long time ago, 8th century B.C. Assyria rose up and, and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they exiled those people, took them to other lands. But they had this vast empire. And what they did was they brought in a lot of other peoples from other places from their kingdom. And they planted them in this place called Samaria. And there were pagans from that religion and that religion and that place. And so there's this mixture of religions in Samaria. Well, over the centuries, as the centuries moved on, uh, Samaria did become monothe monotheistic in many ways. There were still kind of some add-ons and some things that were odd and strange, but they were monotheistic. Uh, but they only believed that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, where it was authentic. And so they rejected the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. And that led to some clashes. And, but, but boy, over the centuries, especially the 3rd century, 2nd century, 1st century, going into Jesus' time, there's a lot of hatred, racial hatred. Those, those Jews, those Samaritans, and they clashed. Uh, in the 2nd century, the Jewish people burned down the Samaritan temple uh, near this place, Mount Gerizim, where, where we're talking about. and just so, so you see the picture. Jesus has to go through Samaria for some reason. Most of the rabbis wouldn't. They'd avoid it like the plague. They, they go to Jericho and then up around to get to Galilee or the other way. They wouldn't go through Samaria. Jesus did. And he comes to this, this town, this, this famous town. It was uh, uh, Shechem, Sychar, Shechem. It was the first place that uh, Abram, way back then, and Abraham is the first altar he built in the Promised Land. Uh, so long history, Jacob's well was there. Uh, archaeologists have found the well. Um, they, they know what the well looks like. It's about 100 feet deep. It taps into a living spring, uh, a living water. It's, it's, uh, the history is there. It's incredible history. But Jesus is sitting there in the well, and, and uh, his disciples are probably wondering, why are we here? Who goes here? What holy rabbi would come here? As, as often Jesus, is, as we know him, he's countercultural. He's always doing things out of the ordinary according to what's religiously accepted. So look at verse 7 with me. He's sitting at the well. Uh, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. <laughs> For his disciples had gone in, away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And, and you've got to know the culture there, too. No single man would, would ever talk to a woman in public, a Jewish man. It, it was just the, the morals, the ethics back then. It was, it was inappropriate to, without escort, without the appropriate setting. And so she's doubly shocked that this Jewish man, this rabbi, it's obvious who he is, that, she, that he's talking to her. She's just, it, 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 she would have never expected it. Again, Jesus is always doing things in, in God's way, not according to the traditions or the structures of men. Uh, for Jesus had no, Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Uh, see, see the, the Samaritans by this point, they think they're the true descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Okay, so it's, it's a, a lot of animosity. So she's bringing up that prideful thing. You know, this is our will. We're, we're the sons and daughters of Jacob. Uh, so a lot of misunderstanding there on the Samaritans' part. Um, verse 13, Jesus said to her, You know, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Uh, pause there again, please. Uh, so Jesus, as if you've read through the beginning of the Gospel of John, you'll see that he's always bringing up spiritual matters, and he's using analogies to everyday life to do so. In chapter 3, he talked to Nicodemus about being born again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? How can a man go back into his mother's, mother's womb? You know, he didn't get it. <laughs> and here the woman's like, yeah. You know, she's like, uh, you know, I, I grew up around here. I, I, I'm, I'm a native here. I know there's no streams, and I know there's no rivers around here. There, there's not, other than the Jordan River on the east side uh, of uh, Samaria, there, there's no rivers, there's no streams in that area. And so she's like, yeah, uh, I, where are you going to get your water from? You don't even have a bucket, and, but I want it. Uh, wh what is this thing? Because the women every day um, in that culture, the, it was the women's job to go to the well to get the water. And so you can imagine how tedious and laborious that was. If you had to walk 300, 300 meters with, uh, you know, a couple buckets, that's one thing. You know, if you have to walk a few miles every day, twice a day, that gets a little old, a little fast. And she's like, yeah, I want that living water. Give it to me. Give me that living water. Right? And so she, there, there's a metaphor going on here. There's an analogy. She, she thinks he's talking about some water that he's going to pull out of his pocket or something. He's talking about spiritual things. Okay. So just in like John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's talking about new life. He's talking about being born again. He's talking about coming to life. Deep matters, deep subjects. And there's a long history. And boy, I was uh, about, about midnight last night. I was nerding out on this stuff. And uh, I don't know if it's going to make sense to you, but I'll, I'll run down the path a little bit. Because there's so much to, to talk about here, so, so much depth about the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, the forms, the, 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 the foreshadowing of Jesus, and even living water coming from Jesus is something the Old Testament looked forward to. If you look back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel uh, chapter 47. Ezekiel chapter 47. Uh, anybody reading Ezekiel these days? <laughs> Some are. Patty is. Uh, sometimes we don't get to the Old Testament so much, but it's important we go through it because there's so much history there that tells us, leads into Jesus Christ and His salvation. Uh, if you look at uh, verse, chapter 47, verse 1, uh, in chapter 40 through 48 of Ezekiel, there's this, this uh, picture of a new temple. In the Old Testament, after the, the sin of the Israelites, how the nations fell apart, how they rebelled against God, there was always this hope of a, a future glorious return of God to, to Israel. Um, and, and so there's a lot of prophecy there, a lot of 
some, we don't know if they're, sometimes they're literal or they're figurative. Well, here in verse chapter 47, look at what it talks about here. Then he brought me to the door of the temple. So an angel is showing Ezekiel a future temple. And uh, the angel brought him to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east. For the temple faced the east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out from the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, and uh, maybe a third of a mile, and then led me through the water. It was ankle deep. And he measured a thousand. He led me through the water. It was knee deep. And he measured a thousand. Led me through the water. It was waist deep. And, and he measured a, a thousand in the river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. And so a vision of this temple, and out of this temple flows this living water. It's spreading through the world. It's spreading everywhere from, from Jerusalem, from the high mountain, God's holy habitation. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And as I went back, I saw the bank of the river, very many trees on one side and the other. And he said to me, This water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Rabbah, uh, the Dead Sea, and enters the sea. And, and when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Whenever the river goes, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will, be, will live. There will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may enter fresh. So everything will live wherever the river goes. And it goes on from there. And, and it's this beautiful picture of, of from the throne of God comes this living water that flows, and wherever it goes, it gives life. It brings life. It brings bounty and, and, and prosperity. And there's, there's, there's a number of scriptures. If you're taking notes, you can write down Joel chapter 3, verse 17 through 18. Uh, I'll show you another, another text related to this. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14, uh, verse, verse 8. And again, it, the chapter 14 of Zechariah at the end of, of that book, right before the book of Malachi, uh, there's, there's this uh, coming of the Lord, this prophecy. One day, the Lord's going to come back. The Lord's going to, you know, Malachi talks about the Lord coming to His temple in, in a fresh way, in a new way. And, and the coming of the Lord's going to be great, and it's going to be incredible. Uh, but, but in verse 8, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And so the, the prophecies, there's so many prophecies like this about living water coming from the throne of God, from the presence of God, by the power of God, bringing life, bringing life, everything it touches. And, and so the, these images, they're incredible, because then you, then you go to the book of Revelation, and, and, and you, you start thinking about, well, th this is pointing towards something deep and incredible and, and wild. And if you look at Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, you know, a famous scene. Uh, at the end of time, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What a great scene. Right, the New Jerusalem, the heavenly city coming down. There's so many passages in the Old Testament that envisions this. Isaiah 2.2 2, and, and, and throughout Isaiah, there's, there's different visions of the mountain of God. All the nations will stream to it one day. It's going to be an incredible scene. Uh, uh, Revelation 20, 21 verse 22, and I, and I saw no temple in the city. 
Okay, so that Ezekiel temple, it's kind of this strange thing that's never been fulfilled. And, and then the end of time, there's no temple. And some think maybe in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be a temple, but it's debatable. And if it, is it just a figurative thing? But notice, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Right? What, what does a temple do? A temple holds the glory of God. The temple is just a place, a habitation for God. And so God, at the end, God and the Lamb, they're the temple, as it were. The new Jerusalem is the temple to come. It's, a, it's an incredible scene. Of, of, we can't even imagine or fathom it. And the city has no need of sun or moon or shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is its Lamb. So the glory of God, it, you know, the housing of what's a tabernacle, what's a temple? It's something that holds the glory of God. Uh, chapter 22, verse, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were healing for the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and a lamb will be in it, and servants will worship him. Uh, so, so the Ezekiel temple somehow is tied to the end times, you know, the, 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 the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem, God's presence. And again, you see the life going out. The river of God, the living water. It, you know, literally, living water means moving water. It's not stagnant water. It's not like in, in, even in, in New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, there's cisterns that hold water. It doesn't move. It, it gets stagnant. It gets slimy. Living water is, is essential in a desert region because it moves, moves and it's bubbly and it brings life. So that metaphor was used in the Old Testament New Testament to talk about God bringing life. God is the source of life and he gives life to whom he will. Uh, and I, I don't, Sandra, this isn't on your, your slide, but uh, came to mind a little while ago. John chapter 7, verse 37. John chapter 7, verse 37. Uh, Jesus was in, in Judea and in Jerusalem on the last day of the feast. The great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow Rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in were to receive. For yet, as of yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so we, we have this, this theme throughout the Bible of living water, and, and Jesus says, I'm going to give the living water. Uh, he, whoever is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever is thirsty, come to me, and I'll give him life. The Holy Spirit and, and everybody who comes to Jesus, repents and believes in Jesus, is baptized into the church, baptized into the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 uh, and 12, 7. Uh, those, those passages are, are pretty cool. But here we have Jesus saying, I'm giving life. And so he, this woman comes and, and she comes to the well. And, and she's, she's like, why are you here? And, and why did you, you know, the disciples are asking, why did you go through Samaria? Could it be that he wanted to, uh, what was Jesus' mission? To seek and save the lost. Why have you come? I've come to seek and save the lost. And so he's bringing good news to this woman, and he uses the metaphor of living water. Hey, I've got some living water for you. Won't you take and drink? Won't you receive life? Won't you receive the Holy Spirit? 
Well, she doesn't get it. <laughs> she says, yeah, I want to drink. Uh, then I won't have any physical thirst anymore. But okay, she missed it a little bit. So he moves on to the next kind of image or tact. Look at verse 16 with me. Ch John chapter 4, verse 16. The, uh, the, the life giver is, is bringing out a different aspect, a different element that he wants to speak into her life. But still related to the same idea of new life, of salvation, of being in a relationship with God. Jesus said to her, verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, uh, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you said is true. And so basically he calls her an adulteress. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You're... You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is, speaking, is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <clears throat> uh, the woman uh, isn't getting his message about living water and, and life and salvation. And so he, he brings it to a greater point. He brings forth her sin. He knows all her life, just as like he knows all of our lives. He knows our brokenness and our shame and our mistakes. He He's heard our confessions. He knows whether we've confessed or not, whether we've come to faith or not. He knows us inside and out. He says, yeah, I know you've had five husbands, and, and right now you're living with a man. And, and so he calls out her sin. You know, living with somebody outside of marriage is a sin. It's called sexual immorality. It's called adultery. And even to this day, uh, it's, it's something that is wrong in the sight of God. Uh, but why did he have to go there? Why did he have to push her? Why did he have to challenge her? Why, why did he... Because he loved her. Because he cared for her. Because he wanted her to understand her need. See, she, she could maybe, couldn't articulate her need, uh, perhaps, in a direct way. She knew that her life was messed up. She knew that she had made mistakes. She'd, she'd chosen to go paths that were broken and even evil. But maybe she didn't understand like, what her need was, what her real need was. And so he had to raise it. You know, you, you, you have issues, you have problems with God. Your sin has separated you from God. Uh, she, maybe she's coming to grips with that, and so she, it seems like, okay, okay, I can see you're a prophet. Man, this is a bad day to come to the well. <laughs> and why is she at the well at noon anyway? Traditionally, the women would come to the well at the morning and evening. And she comes there to the well by herself, as if she's trying not to run into anybody. Because maybe the way she grew up, maybe all those, those girls she grew up with that are now women and married, maybe every time they see her, they scorn her for her immoralities. Maybe she's avoiding being challenged and, you know, it just hurts too much. 
And now this guy calls her out, this rabbi calls her out. She's like, oh, I can see you're a prophet. And, and so th there's a debate about what, where, Jesus go, where she goes here. Is she trying to d deflect like the issue, like, because she, she, she goes, um, yeah, uh, uh, well, the Jews say, you guys, you, guys, you guys say we should worship in Jerusalem, but our, 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 our teachers say we should worship here at Mount Gerizim near Shechem. And, and uh, there's, you know, because the, the Samaritans didn't have, the, they, had, they had the law, the first five books of the Bible, but they didn't have the prophets, they didn't have the Psalms, the Psalms of the writings. So they, they didn't, the, the, the Samaritans didn't believe all the stories about David and, you know, the city of David and Jerusalem becoming the place where God wanted his temple. All they had was the first five books of the Bible. So the Samaritans, you know, they looked at Mount Gerizim as a holy place because that, that's when Israel came into the land where they gave the blessings and cursings to one another. They, they announced that from mountain to mountain. And again, that's where Abraham put his first altar. So they were sure it was there. And, and of course, the Jewish people said it's in Jerusalem. And so is she deflecting like, hey, I'm going to get this, ra you know, these, these pastors, these preachers, these rabbis, they always like to talk about spiritual things. So maybe if I can get him talking, he'll forget about me. <laughs> maybe that's the case. Or maybe she's cut to the heart. And maybe she wants to worship. Maybe she wants to know God. But, but she's confused because she's hearing alternative stories. Like, they say we should worship there. They say we should worship there. I don't know what to do about God. So maybe she's seeking at this point. Maybe she wants to know the truth. She wants to know how to get right with God. To become a worshiper of God. Uh, and so Jesus, he, he accommodates her. Jesus said to her, verse, go back to verse 21 with me. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, What's the big deal about a temple, again? Uh, why in the Old Testament is a temple such a big deal? A tabernacle and then a temple. And, and why throughout all the world are there tap, tabernacles and shrines and places for people to put their gods? It's because tabernacles and temples and shrines are associated with God's presence or the deity's presence. Uh, and it's a great condescension when God comes down in the Old Testament and he he calls Israel to make a... You remember when he came down from the, on, on the mountain? And the fire and the, the, the loud trumpet sound and the, the clouds, right? And on Exodus 19 and Exodus 24, just the, the people were so afraid when they saw the fire and the lightning and the, the clouds and the smoke. And why, why were there clouds there? Because it was hiding the glory of God. The glory of God was there, and they, but they couldn't see it because if they saw the glory of God, they would die. And so God comes in power and authority and might. Right? And, and he condescends, and he, after he gives him the covenant, and after he gives him the law, he says in Exodus 25, hey, uh, make me a temple so I can tabernacle in your midst. Make me, make me a tabernacle so I can dwell, and my holy presence can be in your midst. And so the end of Exodus, Exodus 25 through 40, is basically the story of the tabernacle being built. In Exodus 40, God comes down, and he fills the tabernacle with his glory. So God's glory came in the midst of His people. And we saw last week Old Covenant worship, Old Testament worship. Right? He, gave, he gave structures, He gave the priesthood, He gave how to approach God, the sacrifices and the offerings, and the appropriate way to be in God's presence. He gave all kinds of, of instructions. Do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you'll die. Kind of things. But God's glory came. 
Right? And, and then, then we move on in the, in the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 8, the temple was built. Solomon built this great temple. And there's a beautiful moment when God's glory came down, filled the temple. And everyone fell on their face because they knew God was present. Then we get uh, uh, to Ezekiel again. In the beginning of Ezekiel, what happens? Because of Israel's sin, their, their rebellion against God, their failure to keep God's instructions, their rejection of the covenant. We see in the beginning of Ezekiel that the, the Spirit moves away from the temple. It, it departs. God departs from His people. And for the rest of the Old Testament, we don't see, even when they built a new temple, we don't see God's glory coming back. Even in Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, right? one day there's the messenger who's going to come. He's going to go before me, before the Lord comes back to his temple. That's the end of the Old Testament. And then what, what do we see in the New Testament, right? We see this birth announcement, God with us. Jesus comes and, and his parents take him to the temple. And it's like this great moment, this incredible moment and. In, in, John chapter 1, verse 14, you know, John's telling a story. And the theological story is that the glory of God has now come back. John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, However, the only God who's at the Father's side has made Him known. And, and so we, got, we have this great, this incredible thing about who's, who's, who's Jesus? Well, He's brought the glory back. The glory of God has come in Jesus Christ. We get to chapter, chapter 2, uh, verse, verse 19. Uh, I think, yeah, 19. Uh, Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he's speaking about the temple of his body. Okay, so a lot of things are coming together, uh, right? The, the tabernacle, the temple, that's where God's glory dwelt. But when Israel sinned and they rebelled against God and they broke his covenant, the glory left. And now God has raised up Jesus. And now. Jesus has come, and He's come in glory, and He says, I'm going to raise up a temple, and the temple's going to be my body. I'm the temple now because I'm the glory of God. And all kinds of claims, powerful claims, are, are being made here by Jesus Christ. Uh, there, there's so many scriptures. Uh, again, I, I was nerding out last night. Um, you, you, look at, you look at Matthew, Ma Matthew 12, 6. Um, you, you, can, you can look there if you want. Uh, it, it's, it's just it's incredible to see what, what goes on, all, all the threads that come together. Matthew 12, 6. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. <laughs> and he goes on there and says, the, the, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Your temple, so they have these institutions in the Old Testament. They have these structures in the Old Testament. They have these procedures in the Old Testament. And now in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is fulfilling all these Old Testament institutions. He's brought the law to its end, so to speak. He's fulfilled the law. There's no more need for a physical temple anymore because Jesus is here. The glory of God is here. Uh, the, the old covenant ways of ceremonial laws and, and civil laws, all those things that happened in the Old Testament, suddenly they're all fulfilled in Christ. 
God's promises, all the foreshadowing of the Old Testament. The tabernacle looked towards a day of God being present with his people. The temple looked forward to a day when God being present with his people. And now he's here. He's the object of worship. He's where God is. And so if, you, if you're with Jesus Christ, you're with God. And it's incredible, the ideas that come, come to us. You know, at the end of, of Matthew, Matthew 28, 20, what did Jesus say to those who are following him? He says, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. God's very presence with us always the glory of God on that mountain that, that the Israelites say, Moses, you go, you go up there to God. We can't handle it. Now he's made himself known. He's made himself available. He's made himself present through his sacrifice on the cross. Through his atoning sacrifice on the cross, he's made us acceptable to God. Uh, and so we, we come back, we come back to, to John 4. We come back to this, this teaching. He says, he says to the, the woman, he says, you know what? Uh, the Old Testament ways, the Old Covenant ways... You don't need to think about that anymore, right? The, there was a time when God's terms, we, we approach God on His terms. We approach God in the way that He says to approach Him. And, and I'm telling you, the hour has come where it doesn't matter where you worship. Did you say on that mountain, the Samaritans say on that mountain, the Hindus say on that mountain, not anymore. The hour is coming, and He says the hour is now here. What is the hour? That, that Kairos time, that, that special time. Well, it's, it's talking about Jesus' death, His resurrection, His exaltation. What the Old Testament looked forward to, that hour, that time of salvation, it's come. He says, so, woman. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So that history of, of God's revelation to the Jewish people, that history of God's revelation. He says, but the hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What are we talking about there? God is, seeing, God is seeking spirit and truth worshipers. God is seeking spirit and truth worshipers. And those who come to Him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, let's define it. Let's, because a lot of times uh, when I've sat in sermons and I've been in places like this, the pastor says, okay, there's the truth. Go in peace. Live long and prosper. And bless you. And I'm like, tell me what it means. Uh, you know, this is, this is uh, deep and it's, it's uh, sacred and it's, it's holy, but it's not unknowable. Spirit and truth is, is one phrase that's meant, meant to go together. Uh, let's start with truth first. To worship God in truth means you're worshiping God according to biblical doctrine. You're worshiping God, your, your head, your, your will, you understand what God has done. You understand who God is. You understand what he's accomplished. And so we, worshiping in truth, realize that Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has died. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He's accomplished that work of making us clean in the sight of God. He's accomplished that work of seeing our sins forgiven. He's accomplished that work of reconciling us to God. We, we, we worship in that truth. 
We worship in keeping with God, what God has revealed in the Scriptures. We worship in keeping with the revelation of Jesus Christ. We worship in keeping what has been told us now. And so we don't worship according to Old Testament patterns. We, we don't have to keep the festivals. We don't have to keep the seven-year Sabbath, the Jubilee year. We don't have to keep the holy days. We don't have to keep the food laws. We don't have to keep all these things because now we're worshiping in truth. We know what has been accomplished. We know what God has done. We know who He is. He's Trinity. He's three in one. We keep our worship in accordance with that. The harder part of the phrase is in spirit. Worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, in keeping in the context, what is what is Jesus spoke to the woman? In context of the of Gospel of John, again and again, what Jesus is talking about is eternal life. What God talks about again and again in, throughout these passages is the Holy Spirit. What God talks about again and again is through faith in me. He, he invites Nicodemus, you must be born again, and he calls him to faith. He invites the woman, you, you, I've got living water, believe. In chapter 7, he talks about, man, anybody who's thirsty, thirsty, come and drink. And so in, in spirit is this teaching that the Holy Spirit, you trust in God, you repent and believe, you trust in God, the Holy Spirit will give you life. You must be born again to worship in spirit and truth. The true worshipers, the worship that God seeks, it doesn't come from fallen, lost people. It comes from people who have been made alive, regenerated, born again, brought to faith in Jesus Christ, who are living, have a living relationship with God. His spirit has made our spirit alive. And it's, it's hard to put in, into play. And This is overly simplistic. Overly simplistic. But our worship in spirit and truth is head and heart worship. Truth and emotion and feeling and, and, and reality worship. Let me see if I can explain it a little bit farther. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, a lot of Israel wasn't Israel in the sense of being saved. The nation of Israel, there was a lot of unbelievers. And in the midst of the unbelievers, there was a lot of believers. But God's worship to them was external, it was formal, it was structured, it was paint by these numbers, go to the temple on these days, uh, live according to these patterns, and, and they, it was good. God blessed them with revelation, blessed them on how to live. Right? But now that we've been made alive, we've been brought into communion with God. If we trusted in Jesus, repented and believed and turned to Him, we've been saved. Uh, God's Spirit has made us alive, we've been brought to life, and now we have communion with God. We're, we're in relationship with God, and so we don't have to go through those structures. We don't have to go through the, the sacrifices and the offerings, because one offering already, sacrifice has already been given, and it's been accepted, and, and we're, we're reconciled now. And, and so this, this, this sense of spirit and truth is that we are in relationship with God. And, and so in the Old Testament, there's a lot of externals, a lot of... Uh, Go to that holy day, follow that, that Sabbath, do that, do that, do that. And, and so oftentimes people thought of worship as an external performance. And, and oftentimes it got them in trouble. If you write down Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, Jesus said, you, you, Isaiah was right about you hypocrites. You, you worship with me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so what we're talking about in spirit is, is a heart worship, 
made alive by God, and it's something that wells up with, from within us. It's not externally driven. It's not externally mandated. It's not externally placed upon us. But rather, because we become alive, worship is that response to who God is and what He's done that flows freely from my heart, flows freely from who I am, and I give it to God. It's my offering. And so the external has been replaced. Not, we still do external things like coming here today. We're externally worshiping God. We come into a structure. God calls His church to not forsake meeting to, together with one another. That's an external command that we keep, but it's more than just the externals. Now it's the internals. I can worship God at anywhere, anytime, any place. The kind of worshiper that he's seeking is one who's living in his presence. The kind of worshiper that he's seeking is someone who's, who's living with him 24-7. The kind of worshiper that he's seeking is, is someone that can give thanks, can give praise, who can pray, who can confess, who can, who can honor God, uh, even at work, even at Adams State College, even at Trinidad State College, even at your workplace. A worship, something that happens from the heart. And there's just something about this in spirit and truth. It's moved beyond the formalism. It's moved beyond the externals. It moved, moved beyond the Old Testament structures. And now we've been set free. And the worship that he seeks is that freely given response of living our lives to his glory, to his honor, to his fame. And so, day by day, the offerings that we bring are beautiful and, and love, lovable in His sight. Day by day, as we go through our day and we give thanks for food and we give thanks for daily bread, we, we, we praise Him for our family. We praise Him for the, even thank Him for the hard times and the difficult times. It's worship. Day by day, we, we, we give Him thanks and praise for, for providing a job and providing for health and providing for answers to our problems. It moves on so, so many different avenues, a vast, infinite number of ways that we can worship now beyond the structures of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we've been set free to worship from the heart based on the truth of what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Acceptable worship now is being led by the Spirit of God, being free to worship here and there and everywhere as God brings to mind as we give Him glory and honor and praise. I can't give any more than that. Please stand in the Lord's presence. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for this structure and this setting. Thank You for the people who have obeyed today to come into Your presence and gather with the family of God. Lord, we ask for that, uh, that lifestyle to become our lifestyle, that lifestyle of worship, that, that heart of giving you what you so rightly deserve. You, we worship you because you're worthy, Lord. We worship you because of who you are. We worship you because of what you've done. Let our response be our norm of worship. Let everything we do be done in the name of Jesus Christ. To your glory and your honor and your praise. Lord, uh, give us grace to step into this life of worship. For you are worthy of our very lives and our, all of our days. 
We love you, Lord. Send us out into the world now in your name for your glory, for your honor, for your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. The gospel according to the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who was and is the eternal God, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, died for our sins on the cross, and rose from the dead three days later. He then ascended to the Father's right hand, where he sits making intercession for his people, and right now he is establishing the kingdom of God on earth. You can enter into a saving relationship with God by repenting of your sins and placing your full trust in Jesus' life, his death and resurrection on your behalf. In Christ you will find forgiveness, acceptance, freedom, peace, hope, and a future. If you would like more information about Christianity or Living Water Bible Fellowship, visit our website at livingwateralamosa.org. God bless.